We're, uh, we're going through Mark. If you're uh, new to the project today, uh, welcome. We're going through Mark at the moment. And uh, last week we talked a whole bunch about sin because Jesus did uh, in the section we were doing. And today Jesus talks about marriage and divorce and remarriage. So we're going to talk about marriage and divorce and remarriage today. Um, let's, um, let's be straight about this. Um, there are a lot of free hits uh, when it comes to marriage, right? Uh, marriage in our day is a bit of a piñata, yeah? Where it's like everyone's having a swing at it and having to, trying to hit the thing. Everyone's kind of got an opinion on it. Whether you're um, someone who's got an opinion on adultery, divorce, uh, you might have an opinion on marriage equality, um, living in a de facto relationship, sex outside of marriage comes in to that. It's... Um, there's a lot of opinions out there, true? Now, the difficulty about a lot of people's opinions, and in particular, I think one of the great weaknesses in the church, is that the church has tended to make moralistic statements and forgotten the people in the middle of it and the person in the middle of it. Um, and that becomes particularly uh, problematic. Um, and what we're actually going to see in Mark today is that the Pharisees are kind of doing a little bit of that kind of thing. Is they're wanting Jesus to make a moralistic statement about it. Um, and Jesus is just kind of come from left field, as he does very often. So I don't in any way um, want to, um, to be trite with this today. Because um, it's a particularly hurtful thing, uh, divorce and remarriage. The, uh, the project hasn't. Uh, necessarily handle this as well as we possibly could have um, in the past. Uh, and I want to just um, encourage you today as we, as we begin, uh, is that I think uh, from a preaching point of view, here's a bit of a tip. Anyone here want to be a preacher? Okay. No, certainly not today. Yeah. Here's a tip about preaching on a controversial topic. Preach from a text, all right? Preach from a text and get inside the text and understand what the text is about, okay? So that's what I'm encouraging you today is to, to do today is to actually get inside the text and understand what the text means, all right? And you will hear me deviating very little from the text today, okay? I just said to uh, someone up the back there that uh, every one-liner kind of thing that you think to say in your head has got a five-minute explanation after it. So I've got this thing where I put the mocker on myself. I, often I get up in front of church and I go, I think this is going to be a shorter one today. And then it just goes for like three and a half hours, you know, and everyone's kind of going, see, you're a liar, son of God. You should not be leading this church. But you know what? Um, it's just important. Today I'm just going to have to just be... I feel like I'm walking through some kind of South Vietnamese kind of minefield, you know, with a mind detector and... It's, it's entirely possible that I may step on a mine that is you, and if that's the case, I'd love to talk to you at the end of it, um, because that's certainly not my intention. Let's uh, just do a quick, um, just a bit of a quick survey here on, um, on where marriage is uh, kind of up to. Uh, this is an old newspaper article from, uh, from the Courier-Mail, um, but uh, interesting little trend on the uh, right-hand side. So this is 1998. Notice here the... Uh, the pre-marriage stats. So 1977, the percentage of marriages that people cohabited um, were 25%. 87 was 42 and 97, 65. All right? Uh, really fascinating because when you go to this one here, all right, you can actually see down the bottom here that the stats now in 2013 are that 76.6% of people cohabit before they get married. Okay? That's, that's interesting. All right? Um, and I'm going to say... You know, it's some kind of assault on marriage, right? I'm just, it's just interesting at this point in time. These stats are just interesting. Um, the, um, the other thing I think that's fascinating, if this is from the ABS, is um, the percentage of um, marriages that are actually officiated by a minister of religion now is 27%, which is very low. That means three-quarters of marriages are actually being officiated by a non-minister of religion celebrant, uh, which is an interesting reflection of where society's kind of transition to this one here is from the Australian Bureau of Statistics so the top one graph up there is 2006 the bottom one's 1986 uh, basically what you've got is a percentage of um, people in each age group and the percentage of them that are married which is the blue 
Uh, green is de facto and uh, maroon is not in a couple relationship. Okay? So one thing that you can actually deduce from here is that there were more people that were married in 1986 and there were less people in de facto relationships than what there are in 2006. Did you get that? Cool. <coughs> Pardon me. It's terrible. Let's amplify my cough. That's a, that's a good plan. Um, this uh, slide here, why am I putting this up? I'm putting this up because I think it's just sad. I think this is a very sad slide. Um, and it's good for us to pause when we're talking about marriage and divorce to actually just think that it, it actually is sad and it's actually very painful. So you can see here that these are the stats from 93 to 2013. Uh, it talks about the number of divorces that were granted in 2013. It was just over 47,500. You notice here the median length of marriage was eight, eight and a half years. To divorce was 12.1 years. And then it talks about kids. So you just see up there a whole catalogue of pain because uh, anyone here who's been divorced knows that the pain doesn't stop when you get divorced. Um, it may change, but it doesn't stop. The next uh, slide is um, quite a telling one. This is from the uh, Australian Institute of Family Studies, a government organisation. This one here tells you the rates of relationship dissolution, cohabitation versus marriage. Basically saying how many... Um, cohabitation relationships are de facto split up in the first five years compared to marriage. You know what's fascinating? 38.2% of cohabitation relationships split up in the first five years and 8.8% of marriages do in 94, 95. Okay? So here's the thing. If you're here today and you're in a de facto relationship, you're in a high-risk group in terms of split-ups. All right? Uh, and no one needs to... Uh, no one needs to uh, quote any Bible verse to show you that. I mean, that's just statistically uh, true. I, uh, I don't want to be trite today in dealing with this subject. Uh, divorce is painful. It's an emotionally more wrenching than the death of a spouse. It's often long years in coming and long years in the settlement of it. The upheaval of someone's life is immeasurable. The sense of uh, uh, guilt and fear torture the soul. Um, and then you've got the agonising... Uh, place of children in the relationship. We, uh, we need to do well at the, as a church uh, at um, weeping with those who weep uh, when it comes to marriages. Uh, some of you aren't divorced and you're in very difficult marriages um, and we need to do well to get alongside you. But I want to ask you this question. Who's excited about the state of marriage in Australia? Who's excited yeah, I am. I am. Some of you are going, okay, so we're going, to, we're going to New Hope next weekend. <laughs> All right? That's what's... Where does a light shine the brightest? In the darkness, right? Now, the marriage is getting pretty dark, right? But here's, here's what I want to say to you. It's never, ever been, in God's view, it's never, ever been the responsibility of government to define marriage. All right? That's always been God's job, okay? And so we actually have in the church a really, really sweet opportunity now to provide a stark contrast with the ways that everyone else is kind of viewing marriage, okay? And we don't need to be judgmental about it. We can actually just kind of go, no, we're actually going to go for a whole different thing to what everyone else is doing. Now, some of you are going, well, how do you do that? Well, I'm going to tell you about that later on, okay? Because it's the difference between having a consumer relationship and having a covenant relationship, all right? And we're going to get to that later on. But your deal is, like, if Christians went out there and just went nuts with covenant relationships in their marriages, uh, that would just be a beacon on a hill to a very dark world when it comes to marriage. All right? Matthew 5, verse 13 says, uh, Now you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? The point there is, it's very difficult. All right? But here's, here's the positive. All right? You need to get really, really salty. Like in your marriages, get really, really salty. Because what was the point of salt back then? The point of salt was to bring life, to preserve food so that you could bring life. That's what you're meant to be doing. That's what you're meant to be doing in your marriages. And so I think there is a sweet opportunity. I remember hearing a guy talking a little while ago about how brutal it was when the Muslim Brotherhood took over in Egypt. All right? It was really brutal, but you know what it did is it got so dark, it looked so good to be a Christian, all these people decided to become followers of Jesus. All right? 
And so in the darkness, an opportunity exists. And you can kind of throw your hands up and go, oh, it's terrible, all right? But I would just encourage you today, just go, no, actually, it's a really, really good opportunity. It's a really good opportunity. The light will shine brighter in the darkness. John Piper made this statement about marriage. He said, there's never been a generation whose general view of marriage is high enough. The chasm between the biblical vision of marriage and the common human vision is now and has always been gargantuan. Some cultures in history respect the importance and the permanence of marriage more than others. Some, like our own, have such low, casual, take-it-or-leave-it attitudes toward marriage as to make the biblical vision seem ludicrous to most people. Well, we don't think it's ludicrous, all right? Because Jesus wasn't an idiot. He made a whole lot of sense. And uh, he's going to say a whole bunch of things about marriage today. So if you've got your Bible... You can uh, open it up, turn it on, download it. Um, I don't know. If you've got photographic memory, you're just going to be better than everyone. So we're up to part 30 in Mark, and you, you probably think, how many parts are we doing? And I would say yes. So we're going to start in Mark 10, <laughs> verse 1. And Jesus left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. Anyone know what he taught, taught them? Maybe, yeah, maybe he was a Beatitudes. But you know, the classic thing about Mark is he just tells you that Jesus teaches and doesn't hardly ever tell you what he teaches, all right? Why is that? Because Mark's actually interesting in what Jesus does. And he says, what Jesus does um, means that you have to actually have a response to him. So he's just going to do that, all right? So if you're the kind of person who just kind of goes, oh, can you just shut up and just tell me what you think by your actions? You want to read Mark. All right, because that's, that's what Mark's all about. And the Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Oh, I wonder what you'd say. Now, if you're anything like Jesus, you're going to be smart at this point and not answer it, okay? Because if you're smart enough, you know that someone coming up and asking, asking you that question, if they're coming to test you, but you don't want to answer it straight away. Why? Because you want to ask them another question to find out what they're up to, which is exactly what he does. He answered them. What did Moses command you? Now, that's a trick question, right? Does anyone know which books of the Bible are actually attributed to being written by Moses? First five, okay? Yeah, the Pentateuch, okay? Now, do you know what's interesting about that is that's a lot of chapters of the Bible, true? Now, what, whichever piece they go for is going to tell you something about what they're up to, true? Because Moses wrote a lot of stuff and he actually wrote a bunch of things about marriage. What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Sounds pretty chauvinistic. Anyone with me on that? <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that in a bit. Uh, and Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Anyone know where that's from? from genesis right so moses wrote genesis too so you see what's going on they're going oh we're going into deuteronomy and jesus goes no we're going right back to genesis that's what we're doing um, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh so they are no longer two but one flesh what therefore god has joined together let not man separate and in the house the disciples asked him again about this matter i mean this happens a bit too it's like you know the disciples are out there and they're just kind of going what the heck uh, we didn't really get that but they don't I mean, they've been called out a whole bunch of times publicly, right? So they're getting smart and they're just, we'll just do this on the sly, you know? So maybe they're having dessert or something. They're sitting in there, hey, uh, you know, you're talking about that stuff out there. And they'll have this little conversation. Uh, they asked him about it. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So there's three things coming out of today's uh, scripture passage. The first thing is we see an agenda-driven question. We see that marriage is a covenant and we see that marriage reflects a covenant. Here's your first one here. Uh, you notice what it says here. And again, as was his custom, he taught them and the Pharisees came up in order to test him. Do you know what's bizarre about this? Is the way that testing is meant to work is the greater is meant to test the lesser. True? So if you're in a school, I mean, I taught in Tormer Christian College here for years. Now, if a year nine boy walks into my classroom and he goes, I'm going to test you. Just go, no, man, that's just not how it works. You know, the greater tests the lesser. And some of you have actually got children like this, yeah? They come in and they kind of go, 
Now, I'm going to test you, and you just go, hang on, that's just not how it rolls in this house. Now, one of my favourite lines in my house, and some of you might go, it's pretty arrogant to say that, and it may well be, but I enjoy it, um, <laughs> is this. I, uh, I say, I've got four sons, and I say, uh, you are not the big man in this house. You are the little man, and I am the big man. So stop talking like the big man in my house. And um, yes, you might go, well, that's not very humble. Well, there's times where I'm going to confess things to my kids and I'm going to be transparent with them. But in my house, and I think in every house, it's important that the big man and the little man know what place they're in. And I keep telling them, I said, one day, you're going to be the big man, all right? And you might even have a little man. And at that point in time, uh, the tables kind of turn. So what's going on here is there's a problem, isn't there? Because Jesus is God incarnate on the planet and the Pharisees are coming up and the little man is testing the big man. Now, let's just pause for a minute there. If you actually look up there, um, the, the region that Jesus was in was uh, Herod Antipas's jurisdiction, all right? So there may have been more than just a, a little test here. Uh, does anyone remember what the deal was with Herod Antipas and John the Baptist and all that sort of stuff? Can anyone, anyone just shout it out now? Yeah, he did. Why? Yeah, John lost his head because why? Yeah, so he divorced his wife to marry his brother's wife, okay? So can you imagine what's going on here? The Pharisees pop up and they just kind of go, hey, tell us what you think about marriage and divorce. Now, is it, it, they're in Herod's area and it's like they want to get him out of there and what better way to do it? I mean, seriously, if Herod gets upset... He might take his head off like he did to John, the, to John the Baptist. So it may be that that's actually going on here. But listen, here's the interesting thing about agenda-driven questions. Um, they communicate something that they're not necessarily communicating verbally. That's right. There's a secret kind of bit in there behind it. Let me give you another good one, just as a sample. Uh, I don't know how many times in my life I've been asked by younger people how far is too far in relationships, all right? Which is really the question, how far can I go physically with a member of the opposite sex? Um, maybe it's not the question anymore. Maybe the question is, why shouldn't we have sex? But um, the, the, the question that a lot of Christian kids ask is, how far can I go? Well, let me ask you this. Do you think that's a good question? What do you think? Some of you going, it's another trick question. It's an agenda-driven question, isn't it? Because what, it, what, <coughs> excuse me, what it's really saying, isn't it, at some level, is it's like, how close can I go to the line without going over it? How much can I get before it becomes wrong? Now, I actually think it's probably the wrong question to ask. All right? I think the right question to ask is what is God wanting me to do in the relationship that I actually have at this point in time? What is that meant to look like and how do I actually live that out? Not how can I get as much as I can without going over the line. And I wonder whether the Pharisees are doing that in this passage here too. It's like, can we just, um, what, what can we do? What can we get away with? And Jesus is just not going to play that game with them. All right, let's go to the second point. Second point is this, marriage is a covenant. And the Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Listen to the way that Matthew says they asked the question. Matthew 19, verse 3, and the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? All right, now that's, that's getting a bit more brutal, yeah? Now what would you say? Now this one over here, you kind of just go, eh, I wonder what they're up to. This one here, you just go, I think I know what they're up to. <laughs> like it's a bit clearer in that one. He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Now, classic case. Jesus doesn't answer the question straight away. He asks them another question. He asks them to open up a little more about what their agenda and their assumptions are. Now, what I want to read is a section out of Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 to 4, and this is the bit that the Pharisees are referring to. We'll just read the first half. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favour in his eyes, 
because he has found something, some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out, I'll read the whole lot, of his house or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she's been defiled so for that is an abomination before the Lord and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. All right. The back end of that's really just saying if someone gets divorced and they go and get remarried and then that ends in divorce, they can't, they're not allowed to go back and get remarried to the person they were originally married to. That's, that's the back end of it. But that's a side thing compared to, where, uh, to what the Pharisees are actually talking about. Have a look at the bit in italics uh, that's bold and italicized up the top there. This was what the debate was. This is where the Pharisees are coming from. Uh, if then she finds no favour in his eyes because she has found some indecent, he has found some indecency in her. Now, you might look at that and you might think, Jesus is really, and Moses really getting down on women. Well, this actually was a law that was put in place to protect women, okay? So back in the day, you didn't have social security, you didn't have family tax benefit, you didn't have all that kind of stuff back in the day. And Moses is kind of giving a concession. He's saying, here's a deal. If your husband divorces you, he's got to do it properly so that you could actually go and get remarried and have someone who loves you and supports you again. Do you see that? So do it properly. Like do it by the letter of the law. So the Jews now are having this debate about um, what is a good reason to get divorced. Okay? That's really what it was. Now, if you go to the Mishnah, which was a Jewish oral tradition, listen to what it says about the debate between what's a divorceable offence or not. The school of Shammai say a man may not divorce his wife unless he has found unchastity in her, which is sexual immorality, adultery, something like that, for it is written because he hath found in her indecency in anything. And the school of Hillel say, this is the other school in Judaism, he may divorce her even if she spoiled a dish for him. So you burn the steak and it's like, I'm sorry, that's it. That's it. You're off the island, you know. That's the end of it. For it is written, because he hath found in her indecency in anything. Rabbi Akaba says, even if he found another fairer than she, for it is written, and it shall be, uh, if she found, find no favour in his eyes. So the, the, a dude could go along and just kind of go, well, I like her better than her, so I'm going to write a certificate of divorce and I'm going to get married to her. And so this is the debate that the uh, Pharisees are coming in into the fray on. They're kind of saying... Um, can we just have the no favour thing that means this or can it mean adultery? What's, what's the deal? Now, the beautiful thing about Jesus is he just doesn't go there, all right? And the reason why he doesn't go there is because you don't define something by the boundaries and by the failure of it, okay? You actually define something by the original intention. Let's keep reading in Mark 10, 5 to 9. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you the commandment, uh, this commandment but from the beginning you see that Jesus is saying there that the reason why the commandment actually was was given by Moses was not because that's what God wanted them to do it was because they were hard in their heart and it was a concession for people who had a hardened heart but from the beginning of creation God made them male and female therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh so they are no longer two but one flesh what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. All right. Quick little side lesson. How do you understand the Bible? How do you interpret it? Well, you know what Jesus does? Is he uses the Bible to interpret the Bible. And that's what you need to do. Okay? So the Pharisees grab Deuteronomy 24 and they're saying this is what it means. And Jesus goes, no, if you want to understand Deuteronomy 24, you need to understand Genesis. And he goes back to Genesis. And so I would encourage you, just as a bit of a side note, when you're reading a text in the Scriptures, don't just read the text and go, I wonder what that means. See if you can find other things in the Bible that talk about it, because the Bible's going to help you to understand itself. Well, what did the writings of uh, Moses refer to? Well, if you look up there, it says that um, God originally created male and female and that they would get together in marriage. Their relationship would be more superior to the relationship to family and it would be actually the second highest relationship for people who are married it's the second highest relationship to your relationship with God and one of the things that Jesus does here 
which you may or you may not notice. You notice here it says, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together. Now, if you go back to the question that the Pharisees are asking and you go back to Deuteronomy 24, it sounds like the man has lots of authority, doesn't it? Like he can just write her a certificate of divorce and hand it to her. You with me? Now, it's interesting what Jesus is doing here because part of us in the egalitarian world that we live in, you just kind of go, okay, well, let's give the wife some say. And, and Jesus is kind of saying, no, listen, I want to correct it. The husband doesn't have authority over the marriage and neither does the wife have authority over the marriage. The person who has authority over the marriage is God himself. And you might go, well, hang on, didn't I? I'm pretty sure I asked the other person to marry me. Or you might say, well, I'm pretty sure I was the one that said yes. I mean, we can talk later if you said no and you're married. That would be weird. All right. Do you get what I'm saying? God's the one who actually has authority over marriages. This is what a commentator, uh, Edward, says. The exceptional measures necessary when a marriage fails <coughs> are of no help in discovering the meaning and intention of marriage. Jesus endeavours to recover God's will for marriage, not to argue about possible exceptions to it. His opponents ask what is permissible. He points to what is commanded. Deuteronomy 24, he argues, is not a pretext for divorce, but an attempt to limit its worst consequences for women. Do you hear that? The divine intention for marriage cannot be determined from a text about divorce. I think it's a pretty important comment. So let's just think for a moment. God has authority over marriages in, this, in the project. Now, you might sit there and you might go, well, I'm pretty sure I'd have a part. Yes, you have a part to play, but it's actually not your authority and your say that is ultimate over your marriage in the project or anywhere if you're a Christian because you know why? God is the one who joins marriage together and we don't work out what to do with marriage and with divorce and remarriage by trying to draw boundaries all the time. We actually work it out by going back to the original revealed framework that it was meant to be. Back in the day, the wife had very little say. The husband had it all. Yet Jesus is saying God needs to have all the say in your marriage. You see, it's impossible to betray your spouse and be rightly related to God at the same time. And I want to digress um, just a little bit here and just look at this contrast between a consumer commitment and a covenant commitment. I wonder for you which way you'd go. Is marriage eroded because of attitudes to sex or is sex eroded because of attitudes to marriage? Now, it's probably chicken and the egg a little bit, all right? I probably would lean in favour of, just from my point of view, of saying that I think marriage is eroded by attitudes to sex. You see, marriage in the Bible has always been a covenant. And you might go, okay, sure, that's really unhelpful because I don't even know what that is. Uh, Is there like an updated word for it? And I'd say, no. (laughs) There isn't an updated word. A covenant is not a contract. Um, A covenant is much more significant than a, con- a contract. There's no new updated word for it. It's actually a category of thought. Now, if I say to you something like this, that um, sex is a sacrament, what, how would you define a sacrament? Anyone like to have a chop? No one wants to have a chop. It's a good day. It's a wise day not to have a chop today. <laughs> Yeah, that's good. Like communion is a sacrament. Communion is a sacrament. I suppose that you're, when you take communion, you're taking that in remembrance of God. So I suppose yep. with sex as a sacrament, it's, it's the consummation of something that God's done, mm. put in place. Yeah. Is anyone uncomfortable talking about sex today? <laughs> is it okay? Because <laughs> we're just going to keep going for a while yet. Okay, so we can get you an ice pack if you need it. Put it on your forehead or something. Let me uh, give you a really simple definition of what a sacrament is. A sacrament is a physical expression of an invisible reality. Okay? A sacrament is a physical expression of an invisible reality and sex is meant to be a sacrament. So let me uh, run you through the way that you look at sex if you see sex from a consumer point of view. 
You know what you're doing when you're seeing sex from a consumer point of view is you're asking someone to do with their body what they're not prepared to do with their whole life. Okay? When someone engages in the sex act, they get naked. All right? And it's really about the fact that they're actually saying, I'm giving myself completely to you physically. But if you're seeing it as a consumer, if you're seeing it as a de facto, if you're seeing it as living, living with someone, if you're seeing it as a one-night stand, you're probably seeing it in the light of the fact that I'm giving you my body, but I'm not giving you everything in me because I'm not making a commitment to you. People who see sex as a consumer good rather than a covenant good love the feeling they get from it. And they love the feeling that they get for it and they actually hold on to their own life and they say, I don't want to give you all of these things in my life. I want to withhold all of those things, but I'll give you my body at this point in time. And it just doesn't make sense to do that. You see, each time sex is physical disclosure, it's complete physical disclosure without personal disclosure. And the more times that you actually do that, the more you damage your ability to commit. And you can see that here in the stats, I think, on cohabitation. You see, there's a sense in which sex is a consumer good. It's like it's marketing. If you're living with someone else or you're having sex with someone else who you haven't committed to, it's like you are marketing yourself to the other person and you're always on trial. The sex better be good enough. They better be attractive, uh, attracted to me enough to stay with me. I mean, it's not that uncommon for, um, to, to hear the comment from, uh, from females where they, they have sex with someone to keep the relationship going. That's a consumer good. Sex has become a consumer good. If you've got to have sex to keep the relationship going, it's not a covenant good anymore. It's a consumer, consumer good. And our culture is absolutely saturated with the idea and the belief that you actually can't be a whole happy person without sex. Have you noticed that? It's just like, man, it would suck to be you, you know. That's kind of the vibe of our culture. It's like if you're not having sex and you're not having this amazing sex, uh, you're having a very depraved and poverty-driven life. That's sex as a consumer good. Let me tell you about sex as a covenant good. Sex actually becomes like a sacrament in a covenant when there's commitment there. It becomes a visible sign of an invisible reality. You see, when I make myself, when you make yourself, if you're married, physically naked in the midst of a commitment to the other person and you make yourself vulnerable, it's a physical sign of what you've done with your whole life. You've given yourself to them. And you're saying to them, I belong completely and exclusively to you in the same way that I am in every other area of my life. I've been really helped by um, Keller's thoughts on sex and marriage in this regard. You see, sex becomes a rehearsal in a marriage. Sex becomes a rehearsal of the covenant, doesn't it? That's what it is. C.S. Lewis in uh, Mere Christianity made this um, interesting statement where he, uh, very good statement, perceptive. The monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside of marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all the other kinds of union which were intended to go along with it and make up the total union. And you do violence to it. And you do violence to yourself. So let's transition to views of marriage and have a look at what the difference is between a consumer and a covenant view of marriage. Excuse me while I blow my nose. You can just take a breath. (laughs) All right. Here's what happens when you approach marriage from a consumer point of view. Um, you tend to approach it from the point of emotions, all right, uh, and feeling good about it. It tends to be less binding. We get into some critical areas here. That if you approach marriage from a consumer point of view, your, con- your commitment to them is based on what the other person does for you. Now, you know what this is? This is actually where the other person becomes some kind of vendor and you're someone who's buying something. 
and you relate to them like that. It's like when you go to a vendor, it's like, I'll buy something from you if you give me a good price. And if you have a consumer view of relationships, you have a consumer view of marriage, you're going to go into it and you're kind of going to go, I'll hang around while you're providing for me what I actually want. But I'm going to be looking for an upgrade. So if I can find a good upgrade that's going to work for me, I'm going to take that one. Um, The next thing about a a consumer view of marriage is there's a sense in which the other person needs to adjust to me because my needs are more important than the the relationship. And if I can get my needs met somewhere else, then that's where I'm going to go. And a quick note at this point in time, if you're actually in a relationship and it's based on you feeling good about it, you're actually going to be a slave to it. You are a slave to that relationship. You know why? Because the source of good feelings can come from so many areas that are actually outside of your control. They can come from physiology, body chemistry, your past, um, your mother, uh, your mother-in-law, your circumstances. You're just going to be a puppet on a string. Like if you're someone and you just, I'm in this relationship for the good feelings that it gives me, you're going to be a puppet on a string. And people who live together and don't commit to each other in marriage tend to have consumer relationships. Who here would love to have a consumer relationship? You say, that sounds really good to me. Yeah, are we thinking on that? It's just like, yeah, there ought to be more of those. No? Now, who here actually identifies a consumer approach that they've taken into relationships a bit sometimes? Yeah, I have. I mean, it'd be good for us to look at that and you just kind of go, oh, okay. So I can see sometimes where I think that someone else needs to uh, adjust to me um, because my needs are the most important here. And you can see how a relationship just can't work when you're doing that. It's just going to crash and burn at some point in time. So let me give you what is, I think, the good news. Covenant. Do you know the difference is, instead of there being some kind of emotional relationship that just happens, all right, chemistry, you know what covenant is? It's like, I'm going to create a relationship. It's creating a commitment that a relationship actually begins to exist in the context of. It's actually more loving because it's legal. I kind of think there's a lot of really gutless dudes out there, you know, and they want all the kit from marriage without actually having to make a commitment. And I just, you know, almost said something I would have regretted. But um, I just think, just get some guts about you and go and actually commit. It's more loving because it's legal. And you notice this. You know what a covenant says? A covenant says, I will adjust to you because I've made a promise the relationship is more important than my needs. Do you hear that? That's what it is. Now, I reckon a lot of you already do this. All right? And I just want to encourage you to do it more. So do it more. Don't get stuck in a hole where you just kind of go, I've got to get my needs met here. Go out and adjust to someone else's needs, in a sense, right? Because you value the relationship. People in a covenant say that their needs are less important than the sustenance of the relationship. Have you noticed in a, uh, in a covenant relationship that there's a zone of security and safety where you can be yourself? You see, when you're in a consumer relationship, you know what it is? It's like you're just on trial. And you've got to act all the time and you've got to be something, you've got to do something, you've got to be good enough, you've got to keep impressing them, you've got to have good enough sex, whatever it is. In a covenant relationship, it means you can just have a day where it's just a complete blowout across the board. You can come home and it's just like the me of that day can be a really crappy me to be around and it will be okay in a covenant relationship, won't it? Now, I'm not saying that to justify treating your partner badly, all right? Many of you know from the experience with me that I'm not perfect, okay? And you can, you, uh, you can talk to my wife and she'll say that is an empirically verifiable reality, <laughs> that he is not perfect, okay? But the fact is I'm in a covenant relationship with my wife and I don't actually have to get home and perform in front of her in terms of my actions and the way that I'm leading in the house and, you know... <coughs> Mopping the floor, maybe I need to do that more. But you get what I'm saying? It's like I don't have to do all those things to impress her and to keep her happy because we've got a consumer relationship. We have a covenant and you have a covenant. Everything's a covenant, right? So all we're really talking about is the 
corruption of what is meant to be a covenant. Now, who knows this is true too. When, when you commit to someone in spite of your feelings, deeper feelings often exist on the other side of that. Who knows that's true? Now, the thing is that you just sometimes you're just going to go, this feels really crap and I want out. Now, what God would say to you is, hang in, hang in, hang in. Good feelings will be on the other side of it. Sorry, that was really loose. Good feelings will be on the other side of it. Often deeper feelings will grow. Sorry, that was a bit loose. Last one. Who knows, this is true. Covenant relationships actually bring freedom. You're not bound by feelings. You're not a slave to stuff. There's actually freedom that operates within there. Tara Parker Pope, a uh, columnist from the New York Times, said this, the notion that the best marriages are those that bring satisfaction to the individual may seem counterintuitive. After all, isn't marriage supposed to be about putting the relationship first? Not anymore. For centuries, marriage was viewed as an economic and social institution and the emotional and intellectual needs of the spouses were secondary to the survival of the marriage itself. Do you hear that? But in modern relationships, people are looking for a partnership and they want partners who make their lives more interesting, who help each other each of them attain valued goals. That's where we're at, yeah? I asked my wife the other day, I said, what do you reckon it means to be in a covenant? Now, <coughs> I'm not a big fan of the term partner, right? Because that, that's someone that you go golfing with, okay? But if you hear, if you hear what my wife said... Um, I, th- I just thought, yeah, that's really good. You know what she said? She said it means you've got a partner for life. She said it means that you've got a buddy for life. That's what she said. And I think that's what Jesus is saying. I mean, he's saying a lot more than that, but he's at least saying that, isn't he? He's just saying be with them and have a buddy for life, which means that at times you're just not going to go by your feelings. You're not going to go by whether your needs are being met. Now, the obvious question from the disciples comes up, doesn't it? in Mark 10, 10 to 12, all right? They're not going public with their further discussion to get clarification from Jesus. But when they're in a house, they just go, what, uh, what's going on with this thing? And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Do you know what's fascinating about this statement of Jesus? And hopefully I'll explain this better in the first service. If a man commits adultery against his wife and, and has sex with another, another woman, uh, it was clear in the Old Testament that he sinned um, against the other man's wife. Right? If his wife commits adultery, she sins against him. But there just wasn't a whole lot of talk about him sinning against her. Do you get that? All the talk was about the husband sitting against the other party. She sins against him if she commits adultery, but it's like there was a bit of silence there about her sinning against her husband. And do you know what Jesus is? Part of what Jesus is doing here is he's going, just listen. He's elevating what's, what's happening for women uh, to the same level of what's happening for men. That's at least one of the things that he's doing. And he's kind of saying that the husband sins against his wife, not just against the other party, but sins against his wife and she sins against him. And the obvious question at this point, which many of you will have right now, is um, when is it okay to remarry? Now, it looks to me, and it looks reasonably consistent uh, with the rest of what the Bible reveals and what Jesus talks about. It's not tight as a gnat's nostril, but it's pretty consistent. Um, If you have a look at what Jesus is saying there, it looks like what he's saying is that if an offender, if someone, if a, let's just say the husband committed adultery, the marriage broke down and the husband wanted to get remarried, it looks like what Jesus is saying is he commits adultery by, being, by getting remarried. Do you get that? So the offender is... There's almost a sense, this is the vibe that I get with the marriage passages in the Bible, that the offender almost forfeits the right to remarriage. 
that's kind of what it looks like okay it looks like jesus makes an allowance for the offended to get remarried but not the offender okay now we could go into i mean people someone came up to me after the first message and wanted to ask me all the details about what we think uh, and I thought at this, I actually had a slide in here and I thought, let's just go through, you know, the ins and outs of whether you can get remarried in the different situations. And then I thought, oh, that would be weird because that's kind of what the Pharisees are trying to get Jesus to do. Um, the project has a, a draft kind of position paper on divorce and remarriage and I'll post that again on the city. Uh, it needs to be ratified and that, that's um, on the job of the new eldership uh, to do that. But you can have a look at what we've got so far about that. One thing that um, is pretty persuasive for me, which is a bit, it's a bit new, although it's new for me. Some of you just probably go, yeah, I already knew that. And that's okay. Um, I'm still learning too. Um, was if you just think back in the day, um, does anyone here know what the punishment was for adultery back in the day? Like back in the books of Moses? Do you know what that is? Stoning, right? But not, not with marijuana, but with... <laughs> Some of you go, let's do that. That would be good. Yeah, yeah. Just need a bit of rock and roll. Um, you know what's really interesting about that is that's the same punishment for being engaging in homosexual activity as well, okay? So is, I'm just saying that. I'm not getting off onto that sidetrack. Right, because we could be out there for many, many weeks, okay? Uh, but I'm just saying that because it's kind of like we like to rant and rave about the kind of homosexual thing, and um, you just got to realise, um, in, in God's eyes, at least if the penalty's the same, it's the seriousness is probably the same. Anyway, back on back on track. So uh, the Bible's very, very clear about the fact that if someone um, dies, like if your spouse dies, can you get remarried? Yeah, like that's a no-brainer, okay? So back in the day, imagine if, and this is kind of Luther's, one of Luther's arguments. He says, back in the day of Israel, if your uh, husband committed adultery uh, and was tried and prosecuted, what would happen to him? Yeah, they'd get killed, all right? Are you allowed to remarry? Absolutely, because they're dead, all right? Now, here's the thing. There's, um, I mean... And Luther's kind of point is, it's like, well, civil authorities now don't let us do that, right? In spite of the fact that people who have been committed adultery against kind of go, yeah, let's bring that one back. That would be really good, wouldn't it? It's like, I'll throw the first stone. Yeah, that would be really good. And so Luther basically says, uh, his kind of position on it is like, look, if the punishment was death um, and uh, the person's free to marry after that and the civil authorities don't let us, then we can say that there's been a death in a sense, of, of the marriage. So, look, um, happy to have any kind of discussion that you want to have about that. Um, you can come and see me later. Um, most of the time, um, I, I hope you can get the vibe of what Jesus is saying here. He doesn't want people to get divorced, okay? So the role of a church, this church, the leadership in this church will never, ever recommend that someone gets divorced, Okay. Now, I'm not saying that it, it wouldn't be appropriate. I'm saying the church would never recommend that because Jesus actually never does. All right? He never... And if you look through the Bible, nowhere does the Bible say in a commanding, demanding kind of way you should get divorced. Okay? Even in cases of adultery. And I want to ask you this question just in closing. Why do you reckon that is? Why do you reckon the laws that God gives about marriage and divorce are a concession rather than a command? Let's go with that. You know why? Because marriage reflects a covenant. It is a covenant and it reflects a covenant. The book of Hosea is a startling book. He's called the uh, the deathbed prophet. The reason why he's called that is because it's right at the end of Israel's time of actually inhabiting their own kingdoms and just before they go into exile. Listen to what God says to Hosea. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. You know what God said? 
I want you to go down to deviations and find yourself a wife. Find a prostitute and I want you to marry her. That's what I want you to do. Why is he saying that he wants Hosea to do that? The reason why he's saying he wants Hosea to do that is because that's what the nation was doing to him. They were committing adultery against him all the time. And then you've got some uh, prophetic writings in the the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2. And then this at the beginning of chapter 3. And the Lord said to me, go again. What do you reckon it says? Go again, love a woman. Because she left him. She went back into prostitution. Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So if you love raisin bread, you're in trouble. (laughs) So what does Hosea do? So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethech of barley. Can you imagine that? He's had to go and buy his own wife like he would buy a prostitute. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. Why doesn't God demand divorce? Because he doesn't do it. That's why. Is there a concession for it? Yes, there's a concession because of hardness of heart. But he doesn't demand divorce because he doesn't do it. What does he do? Well, he goes after you, doesn't he? I mean, if, if, you are, if you're one of his kids, I can guarantee you that in the last week you have not faithfully followed him every day and every minute of every day in the last week. You've turned away from him. You've worshipped other things. You've had love affairs with other gods in the last week. And what does he do? Well, he comes after you. That's what he does. He doesn't divorce you. And that's a great hope for you. He, doesn't, he didn't enter into a consumer relationship with you. Do you get that? He entered in, into a covenant with you. He came in the person of Jesus and he created a relationship with you. He committed to you on the cross. He didn't commit to you because you were good enough or you had a good enough record. He committed to you because he loved you. That's why. And he promises that he is going to adjust to you. Do you see that? He says, like a covenant relationship, he says, this relationship is more important than my needs. And so we see Jesus come in person and he forsakes, he gives up his whole life to give you what you desperately need. Do you get that? He's doing covenant with you. In fact, he's doing covenant with you right now. You see, he sees that his needs are less important than the sustenance of the relationship that he has with you. And his commitment to you, who knows this? His commitment to you provides a zone of security and safety where you can be yourself. Isn't that true? And you know, you can have a shocker tomorrow, right? In your relationship with God, you could go out tonight and get smashed and just do a whole bunch of dumb dumb things, right? And tomorrow... He's going to pursue you and he'll win you back, all right? Should you not do those things? Absolutely. Don't be an idiot, all right? Don't be an idiot tonight. Why would you walk away from someone like this? It makes no sense at all. You can be yourself with him. You don't have to impress him. You don't have to be good enough for him. His covenant relationship with us brings freedom.